Let's pray. Father, thank you for the morning you've given us and all of your mercies and the ways that you smile on us and uh, give us everything we need for life and godliness. We thank you for your word and we thank you for this particular book that we'll be studying the next 12 or 13 weeks. And we pray that you would use it uh, in us and in the life of our church and that we would grow and... and um, that the end result of this would, in fact, be our love for you and love for one another and love for our neighbors. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. So we're starting First uh, Timothy this morning. And First Timothy is one of those three letters that are written to pastors in the New Testament, right? So uh, first, first Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. And these three letters are clearly addressed to two different individual men, right? So Timothy and Titus, of course, who were serving as pastors in two different locations. Timothy is serving in Ephesus, and we'll see that this morning. That's where he is. Titus, you remember, was where? And you remember where Titus was serving? Crete. Right. That land of gluttons and slow bellies and whatnot, as Paul says. So Timothy in Ephesus, Titus in Crete, and uh, the apostle Paul wrote these letters to these men because they needed to do specific work in their churches. And we'll see that right, right at on, off the bat here in First in Timothy, what Timothy has to do. The work that both Timothy and Titus have to do in their churches, in their towns, in their area, is difficult and contentious work. It's difficult and contentious work. And you see that all through all of the pastoral epistles. Timothy and Titus are in difficult churches with difficult work that required them to fight. And, but the thing is, that's not weird, all right? Uh, this is what churches are like. This is what all churches are like. This reminds us of something we've seen over and over again when we've studied both the Bible and church history, all right? The steady state, the status quo, the, the norm within the church is conflict, just read the New Testament, read the epistles written to pastors, like First Timothy, and to churches, and you see that these, there's always conflict going on, and, and almost always at the center of these epistles is some kind of conflict. There's conflict over doctrine, I'm going to see that this morning, conflict over sin, that's happening in the church or being tolerated or not being addressed. Um, conflict that's stirred up by proud men who want to be preeminent, want to be teachers and want everyone to see them. We're going to see that even this morning. But you see it all over the place. Uh, let alone the conflict with the unbelieving world that hates God, the, the, the world outside, the conflict that's outside, the unbelieving world that hates God, that hates the gospel of Jesus Christ, that hates everyone who loves him, okay? There's that conflict too. But you don't, yeah, you do see it, but... I would say the vast majority of the conflict that's dealt with in these letters, certainly in, in Timothy, in the pastoral epistles, is conflict in the church. That's just the norm. Uh, it's not good, 
there are kinds of conflict that, you know, are bad, but the conflict that he's calling um, Timothy to here is just absolutely necessary, and the life of the church depends on it. And so the Apostle Paul writes these letters to these pastors, and he gives them specific instructions about how and why and who to fight, all right? And how and what to teach to the people in the church so that they don't end up being casualties in the war for their souls, for their own souls. So that's, that's kind of the backdrop to all of these um, pastoral epistles. Now, as we're going to see in a minute, um, the Apostle Paul, I believe, never intended for these letters to remain private. This is weird because this, these are letters that are addressed to individual men, right? Timothy and Titus. Um, but they were not just for Timothy and Titus only. I believe it's clear in all three pastoral epistles that the Apostle Paul meant for them to be read in the church and by the church. It was exactly what we're doing today. This was the point. Um, he meant you to read them even if you're not a pastor, all right? So I've titled this series, Reading the Pastor's Mail, um, but don't worry, it's not a, it's not a federal offense. You're supposed, to, you're supposed to in this case, all right? Now, let's, let's read. We're going to do uh, chapter 1, and we're going through verses 1 to 11 this morning. And I wanted to fit it all in one thing, but if you can't read it, open your Bible. Anyway, it'll get bigger in a minute. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urge you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. All right, now as with all the Apostles Paul's letters, he begins by identifying himself, identifying this recipient, giving a greeting, all right? So this is verses one and two. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So look at this. He identifies himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He's writing to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Think about this. Um, does, Tim, does Timothy know who Paul is? Yeah, right? 
they clearly had not just some kind of uh, official, professional, you know, connection. They had an intimate connection. A long history, we know that from the book of Acts. We know that Timothy traveled with Paul and Paul had a, took a special interest in Timothy, right? Does Timothy know Paul's office as an apostle? Of course. Is Timothy rebellious? Is that why the Apostle Paul is reminding Timothy of his apostleship? Does Timothy need to be reminded, instructed or reminded about Paul's office? Because Timothy's starting to, you know, needs to be brought to heel, you know, he's, he's starting to wander off the tracks and he needs to be rebuked and reminded of, his, of Paul's authority. No, Timothy doesn't need to be reminded of that. Think about this. We just read this and take this for granted, but think about um, this, the way that he's talking here, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, this would be like, um, this would be like Pastor Bailey, okay, writing to Lucas Weeks, right? Do they have a close relationship? Do they know each other? Have they known each other for a really long time? Does their relationship, is it just a professional relationship? No, they're kind of related now, right? You know, he's his son. Okay, so think about this. Think about Pastor Bailey writing to Lucas Week, saying something like this. The Reverend Timothy Bailey, senior pastor at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana, moderator of the elders board, moderator of Evangel Presbytery, father of your wife, grandfather of your children, to Lucas. You know, would he have to say that? No. But Paul says that kind of stuff here, right, to Timothy. So why? Why does he start by asserting his office as an apostle? Not because Timothy's not aware, not because Timothy is rebellious, but because of those who are reading the pastor's mail. He says it for them. And he says it in order to strengthen Timothy in his position to do the work that Timothy has to do. In other words, the Apostle Paul fully intends for this letter to be read by the whole church. By us, secondarily, but by the, by the church. And he begins with a statement of his authoritative office as an apostle, not because Timothy needs to hear it, but because the church needs to hear it. Think about the effect of this on the church, especially on the troublemakers in the church, who we'll meet in just a minute. But think of this. Timothy opens the letter. He, the, the congregation is gathered together. He opens the letter, and he's the one reading it, and he, and the, he reads out loud to the congregation, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. All right? What, what is immediately clear to the listeners at this point? Well, Paul's an apostle. Remember everybody? Paul's an apostle. And he was commissioned by God himself. He says he's an apostle by the what? I think this is the strongest use. Uh, it was probably the strongest uh, introduction I can think of. Maybe I'm wrong, but an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior. All right, that's a heavy word. That's an authority word. 
right? He's not an apostle by the, I don't know. Yeah, but by the commandment. And he carries the authority of Jesus Christ, so that's Paul, that's who's writing. And then Timothy is what? Timothy has a special relationship with this authoritative apostle. Timothy is Paul's true child in the faith. And here is Timothy reading this to the congregation. Kind of awkward, you know, and yet absolutely necessary. The congregation needs to remember who Paul is and therefore who Timothy is. So this is an authoritative letter from an apostle. The recipient Timothy is not just some bureaucrat who was appointed by some upper level dignitary in some office somewhere, you know, in the high office somewhere. Timothy has a personal and intimate relationship with the apostle Paul. They are like father and son. And so the apostle Paul is very intentional in what he's writing here, even in the greeting of the letter. I want everyone in Ephesus to remember that I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, and I want everyone in Ephesus to know that Timothy is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's, that's the feel. And everyone's listening now, right? And everyone's remembering the relationships and the authority and the connection. Now, what are the lessons here for us? I think there are a couple. Number one, the obvious one, is that God established authority in the church. That's why Paul is writing this. He's reminding them of authority. I am an apostle by the commandment of God. I'm under authority. Paul was under authority. He, he had to submit to the commandment of God in this office, and that, because he's under authority, he has authority. And then secondly, relationships mean something. In other words, the fact that Paul has a close relationship with Timothy tells us something about who? Timothy. That tells us something about Timothy. If Timothy has this kind of relationship with Paul, and it's reciprocal, right, then that tells us something about Timothy. The same thing is true today. Uh, You can learn a lot from a pastor or even from a church by who they have relationship with. Mark that very carefully, all right? Where, where did this man come from? All right, if you're, if you're looking for a church, you move away, you're visiting somewhere, you're, you're trying to find a church, you, and, you, and you think, wait a minute, okay, where did this man come from? What are his influences? Who loves this man and who trusts him? Who does he love and trust? Who can vouch for him? And that works both positively and negatively. Sometimes you see who his influences are, right? And you say, oh, okay, well, hmm. Or you say, oh, okay, he's trusted by this man and he trusts him and okay, right? In other words, it can work both ways. It tells us a lot. This speaks volumes to the church. And in Timothy's case, it speaks volumes to those in the church who are causing trouble for the church. The Apostle Paul is not to be trifled with, and therefore Timothy is not to be trifled with. Okay, that's the point in what he says here right at the beginning of the letter, right out of the gate. I'm the Apostle Paul by the commandment of God. That man right there, your pastor, is my true son in the faith. He has authority. Now, by the way, 
Um, we also know, that's why, that's why I believe it's written to the whole church, okay? If it was just a personal private letter between Paul and, and Timothy, it wouldn't sound like this. So that's one thing. The other thing is, um, we also know that he's writing to the whole church because of this little detail. The last line of the letter, if you go all the way back to the end of it in chapter 6, the last line is a benediction, right? One of those blessings to the church or to the reader. And the benediction is grace be with you. And guess what? The word you is what? It's, it's plural. <laughs> it's plural. He's not writing, he's not even, in, in Paul's mind, he's not writing just to Timothy. In his mind, he's writing to everybody. And when he blesses them, he doesn't just say blessings to you, Timothy. He's grace be with you all, right? So he's meant to be read to everybody. Now, why did he need to establish, why this need to establish Paul's authority in Timothy's personal relationship with Paul and his delegated authority from the Apostle Paul, why does that need, need to be established and be public for everyone to hear and everyone to see? Well, here it is. This is the point this is the most important thing because this is what he starts with, right? Verse three. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, so Paul had been at Ephesus, but now he left, and he's reminding him and reminding everybody who's listening. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. That's pretty heavy. So remember, the Apostle Paul had, had planted the church in Ephesus. When he left to go to Macedonia, he urged Timothy to stay in Ephesus, Ephesus so that he could what? Remain on so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So he's got a job to do. He has to stay there for the purpose of instructing certain men. Now, this, this translation of this word is really, really weak. Okay, instruct. The word translated instruct here does not catch the flavor of this word. When you, when you read this word or hear it, what, just what comes to mind? Do some free association stuff. What? Tennis. There you go. That's a free association. <laughs> Rutabaga. No. Because of a, where are you? Yeah. So a teacher, you know, who's just teaching a skill, right? Instruction today, especially today, has no authority to it. Now that's wrong, but that's the way it is today. When we hear instruct, we think pass information. You can be instructed by a video on YouTube. That's not what the word means, all right? This word is much better translated, and other translations get this right, uh, as charge or command. 
charge or command. It carries force and authority, not just a transfer of, of data, all right? It is an authoritative word, better translated charge or command. And so who is Timothy to charge or command? He is tar- to charge or command certain men. You see that? Let's change it here. Remain on Ephesus so that you may command or charge certain men. Who are these certain men? Are these men inside the church or outside the church? Let's take a vote. Inside? Outside? You're right. Yeah, it's inside. These are men who are under the, the sphere, they're under the sphere of Timothy's authority. He's able to charge them. He's able to command them to stop. These are teachers in the church. Now, what's another name for teachers in the church? Elders. All right. These are elders. And Timothy is given the job of telling them to stop it. To stop teaching this way. Why? Remember, this is Acts 20. We saw this a while ago we were in Acts. This is the Apostle Paul talking. Who's he talking to in Acts 20? Which elders? Where's Timothy? He's in Ephesus. So this is the Apostle Paul when he's saying goodbye finally to the elders at Ephesus, where Timothy now is. This is what he says to them, remember? Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, elders of Ephesus, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. This isn't unique to Ephesus, okay, but this is where we hear him saying this. He's saying to the elders of the church, I'm leaving, watch out, be on guard. Wolves will come in, but they won't just come in, they'll come up from within. And from within, even the the elders, even you men I'm talking to right now who are kissing me and crying with me and all that kind of stuff, some of you, from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things. And so here it is. Here's Timothy in Ephesus. Men have arisen, elders in the church. As a matter of fact, we'll see later in the letter that the Apostle Paul actually excommunicates two of the Ephesian elders right here in 1 Timothy. He does. We'll get to there in a while. So that's what's going on, all right? This is some serious conflict. So he says, as I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, instruct certain, remain at Ephesus so you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So he has a job to do. His job is to shut these men down. Shut them down. Charge them, command them with authority to stop teaching strange doctrines, to stop paying attention to myths and endless genealogies. Now, the fact is, I mean, what is he talking about here? What 
what strange doctrines, what myths, what endless genealogies, what is he talking about? Well, do you know what the commentators do with those terms? You know what they do? They speculate. (laughs) That's all they can do. And boy, do they speculate. That's funny because that's what he says all their, what this stuff leads to, right? Leads to mere speculation. Oh yeah, even in the commentators it leads to speculation. So we just don't know. We don't know. We can, you can try to piece things together. We just don't know exactly what it is. And, and I think that's part of the point that the Holy Spirit didn't tell us exactly what it was because if he told us exactly what it was, we could say, oh, well, that's not my problem. We don't have to worry about that. But it's kind of generic and it's kind of vague and... And so the point isn't the, the exact teaching, the point is the fruit of the teaching, all right? And that applies to everybody. So what is the, the fruit of their teaching? It gives rise, he says, to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Later on he says it, uh, it's fruitless discussion. It doesn't help anybody. So this teaching is novel and it's useless. But it sounds what? Oh, it sounds deep and insightful. Maybe even exciting. But in fact, it's useless. It doesn't promote godliness, doesn't promote love, doesn't promote obedience to God, doesn't promote faith, doesn't promote what he calls here... um, the administration of God, that's the work of God in the world. It doesn't further that at all. The administration of God, which is by faith, it's useless. And it does, all it does is distract the people in the church from their real work. And of course, exactly what the Apostle Paul said to the elders in Acts 20, what else does it do? draws away the disciples after them. You see? Right? They make a, they make a, they get a reputation. Oh, oh yeah. Oh yeah, that guy, he's deep. Oh, he talks about things no one else talks about. He comes up with things that, wow, I've never heard that before. He draws away disciples. Which is, I think, one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul doesn't dignify them with name, by naming them. Certain men. So and so. And they're sitting there in the congregation when this letter is being read out loud to them by Timothy. And he doesn't even dignify them with a name. Now, he does name them, he does name them and he excommunicates later. We'll get to that. But in this case, they're just not even worth naming. He doesn't want them to be named. Now look at the contrast between the Apostle Paul and these novel speculators, right? The goal of our instruction, in contrast to their instruction, their instruction leads to speculation and doesn't build up the work of God that is by faith. But the goal of our instruction, and that word instruction, there it is again, it's not data download. It's that same word that has authority to it, okay? The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. 
So in contrast to these, you know, fancy pants teachers who are drawing disciples after themselves and are being all novel and speculative and all that stuff, the goal of our instruction is love. We're not aiming for speculation or novelty or deep thoughts. All of, in all of our teaching, we are aiming at one thing, and that one thing is love. And remember, what does he mean by love? What is love? What is love? According to Scripture. Love is obedience to the law. Right? Romans 13, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it's summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. When he says the goal of our commandment is love, he doesn't just mean what? He doesn't mean sentiment. He doesn't mean warm, fuzzy feelings. He means something. The goal of our commandment is obedience to the law. What kind of obedience? Love, the goal of our instruction is love. So practical obedience, love for God, love for neighbor that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is obedience that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit who gives you faith, who gives you a clean heart, gives, gives you a good conscience. And when that work is going on by the Holy Spirit, the fruit of that work is love. And love is obedience to God. And so the true teaching of the gospel cleanses the heart, cleans the conscience, purifies our faith, and that results in love. And love is obedience to God's law. And this is nothing like what these teachers are doing. That's not their goal at all. Their goal is to look them, make them look you know, deep. They don't care about you. They don't care about your obedience. Then he comes back. Verses 6 and 7. Comes back to these teachers who need to be shut down. For some men, there are those certain men again, right? For some men, straying from these things, straying from what things? This is a damning, damning thing to say. What are they straying from? What did he just say? They're straying from love, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Yeah, yeah, it is. So he says, some men straying from these things. Straying from a good conscience, straying from a pure heart, and straying from a sincere faith. They are going off the rails. This isn't just a little tweak. These men are wolves. Okay? They themselves, personally, not just in their teaching, oh, they're good men, they've kind of erred a little bit, you know. No, no, no. They have strayed from sincere faith. They've strayed from a good conscience. They've strayed from a pure heart. What do they do? They've strayed from these things, have turned aside from the true teaching to fruitless discussion wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They don't even know what they're talking about. They have no idea what they're even talking about. 
Okay? They're making it up as they go. There is always a moral, ethical, spiritual root to bad teaching. The bad teaching is just not an accident. It comes from somewhere. It comes from the fact that they've turned aside from not just the truth as some kind of theoretical thing, but they've turned aside from even the the inner work of the Holy Spirit, good conscience, sincere faith, pure heart. Now, let's let's, uh, take a minute to apply that to ourselves, okay? Is this kind of teacher around today? Yeah. Of course. Now, Paul's a... The Apostle Paul here is a better man than I am, goes without saying. And he doesn't name these men, certain men. Well, I'm going to name some. Uh, When I was reading this, thinking about this, two names came to mind immediately. Men who speculate, men who have deep thoughts. All right, who am I thinking of? I'm thinking of James Jordan and Peter Lightheart. Now, some of you, thankfully, have no clue who I'm talking about. That's great. Don't even worry about it. Forget it. Forget I mentioned them. Certain men. Yeah, certain men. Some of you know exactly who I'm talking about, and some of you are tempted to listen to them and think of them as deep thinkers and deep teachers. And let me tell you, they're not. They're not. Their, their teaching leads to fruitless discussion and mere speculation. And it does not promote and advance the work of God that's by faith. All right. Don't go looking them up. If you've never read them, don't. Please. Forget I said it. Unless you have ears to hear, then you better hear. Mere speculation turned aside to fruitless discussion. They do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. All right, let's move on. We have five minutes. But we know, so he's just talked about the law. They want to be teachers of the law. They don't know what they're talking about. But Paul knows what he's talking about, right? But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." So this is, you know, as we've seen in Romans 6 and 7, as Pastor Bailey's been preaching through Romans, the law is good. The problem is not the law. The law is good. But the law is not good if it's twisted, right? The law is not good uh, if you you use it lawlessly. It's good if you use it lawfully. If you use it in accordance with the law, you know, you can't break the law when you use it. You understand? The law is good if one uses it lawfully. So what is the lawful use of the law? 
He says, the law is good. We know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person. Now, the Apostle Paul here is not giving like an a, a encyclopedic definition of the uses of the law. He's dealing with a particular problem, right? Scripture as a whole teaches that God's law has three uses. Three uses, not three types of law, but three uses of the law. Three uses of the moral law to restrain evil in society. This is why we have laws against immoral things. We used to have laws against things like sodomy and adultery. We still have laws against theft and perjury and murder. Right? So the the law of God is used to restrain evil in society. Secondly, it's to show us our sin and drive us to Jesus Christ. And then third, it's to teach us after we come to Christ, how to live our lives that honor God in obedience to the law. Love, the law that, you know, love that fulfills the law. Here he's talking about the first and second uses of the law, I think. To restrain evil, to show us our sin and drive us to Jesus Christ. So he says, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made, that law is not made for a righteous person. So in the the way he's talking now, Okay, that doesn't negate the third use of the law. He's talking about something very specific here. Um, But who is it made for? Well, to restrain the evil and to show the wickedness and to drive people to Christ of who? Those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, whatever else is contrary. Now, does anyone notice anything about that list? What do you see? This is the Ten Commandments. All right. Yeah, it's easier to see if you start here. What's the uh, fifth commandment? Remember Tim had us do this the other day. What's the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. What's the, what's the most extreme way you can dishonor your father and mother? Oh, I don't know. Kill them. Right? What's the sixth commandment? Murderers. What's the seventh commandment? Immoral men and homosexual, homosexual sexual sin. Uh, where are we? Eight. What's the eighth commandment? What is it? You know what that word means? Kidnappers? What's the old word for kidnappers? Man stealing. What's the worst thing you could steal? A man, <laughs> you know. Uh, and what's the eighth or ninth? False witness, liars and perjurers. The tenth is covetousness, and I think this is kind of a catch-all. Whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. And then you go backwards up and you see these pairs of words up here and you, could, you can make a case for these. I'm not going to take the time. That these are, in fact, the first table of the law. These are Godward, right? Um, lawless and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. All right? So he has a, he's, he's thinking about the law, the moral law, the Ten Commandments. Uh, we don't have time to get more into that. Here's the point. All right, we need to be done. Here's the point. Timothy, you have work to do 
you need to shut down these teachers in the church who are driving people away from true obedience to God. You need to shut them down. Yeah, I know they're your elders. (laughs) You need to shut them down. Uh, You need to shut these men down who are driving people away from the obedience of love for God and neighbor that flows from the inner work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the righteous. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. You need to shut them down, Timothy, because all their fancy deep talk is totally empty of these things. These teachers are themselves empty of these things. They've turned away from it. They have no interest in even personally their own obedience to God, let alone yours and the church. All their empty talk does is make them look smart and make God's people cold and loveless, which is to say disobedient. That's all it does. That's all it does. Come on. All their empty talk is, in fact, contrary to sound, healthy teaching. Right? Brothers and sisters, be very careful about who you listen to. Be very careful about who you listen to, who you read, who you watch, who you think, oh, they're interesting. Oh, they have novel. Oh, never heard that before. Be very careful. Okay? Be very attentive to the end, the end of their teaching, the point, the result, the fruit. What does it produce? What's the fruit? Is it warm obedience to God? Is it love for God's people? Or is it fruitless, empty speculation and non-stop talk? All right. And to all of us who are elders and pastors in this church, are we immune to this? No. So let's keep it each other accountable. Okay? We need to hear this. This isn't an, an interesting historical artifact. This is for us. And this shows us what the work is. Okay? We've got to be done. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray that you would give us a sober mind as we think about these things, give us real discernment. And I pray for all of us who might be tempted to um, turn away to these kinds of fruitless and empty talkers, these, uh, these deep thinkers. Lord, I pray that none of that would have any appeal to any of us, but only the kind of teaching that promotes your work in our obedience, Lord. Please have mercy on us. We thank you for this letter and help us to, uh, to really benefit from it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.